it's a tyrannical way of doing politics where we say, well, you can't say this and you can't joke about this. And we've got these sacred cows that cannot even be tackled through comedy. That to me was a bad sign. It was a sign that we were moving in the wrong direction and it worried me. Hello and welcome to this week's Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. My guest today is Constantine Kissin, the comedian and author of An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. Constantine has written an enjoyable polemic arguing for free speech, particularly in comedy, and it's this that is very close to my heart. You may have noticed it's a little off piece from history, but Constantine is an engaging guest, so I'm sure you can forgive me. Now, growing up with stand-up Comics such as Richard Pryor, Alexei Sale, Eddie Murphy, Jerry Sadovitz, Stuart Lee, Norm MacDonald, Doug Stanhope, and the great Bill Hicks. These are all comedians that have pushed boundaries and offended. But how would some of them get on now? As we've seen recently, even police forces are getting involved with comedy. We then chat about his background, with several generations of his family having suffered terribly at the hands of the Soviet system. Constantine's experience of that system has led him to be very aware of where we are as a society today, and his book looks at life under totalitarian regimes, and are we living in a time when we too have to be careful about what we say. Now I'm not an absolutist on free speech, we have hate speech laws for extremism, but there are countless examples of individuals who've lost their jobs and reputations recently, and the same things happened in the Soviet Union. All links are in the show notes, and you can listen to Constantine's podcast, Trigonometry, which features interviews with historians, including our own Roger Morehouse. I've put in links with two great examples in there. Head over to our website for more great historical content. If you want to get hold of me, you can via the Twitter, and our email address is history at aspectsofhistory.com. I hope you'll enjoy our chat. Constantine Kissin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, well, we're here to talk about your new book that I think has only just been out less than a week, um, which is the uh, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, which I've just finished and I enjoyed very much. And really, I thought we'd we'd start off just introducing you to my listeners because um, you've... I guess you've had quite a meteoric rise, actually. I was thinking about this after um, a bit of controversy, but you're you're actually a, a comedian. But I, before I sort of introduce you, I wondered if you could do you could do it because you've got a very interesting um, uh, rise in your career. It's funny you should say that. One of my favorite quotes is from a, a American baseball player called Yogi Berra, who was known for having witticisms of, of certain uh, and that told a lot um, of truth but but they were concealed in a wrapper of humor and he said that it took me 10 years to be an overnight success uh, and I, I I kind of feel like that as well like I, I have been working very hard but there have been events that have helped to speed my uh, my career along uh, so uh, very briefly about me I was born uh, in the Soviet Union in 1982 I lived in different parts of it in the Russian part of it, in the Ukrainian part of it. I lived in Uzbekistan uh, for a period of time as well, where my dad was from. He was born there, not Uzbek himself, but that's where he was born. Uh, for reasons that history uh, fans will probably appreciate, Stalin moved a lot of tribes and peoples around the country to keep them pacified. So my Greek family ended up living in, in the deserts essentially in the arid wastes of Uzbekistan uh, as a result of, of those movements of people. Um, and uh, I lived in the Soviet Union until it collapsed. And then I lived in Russia for a few years before my parents uh, managed to scrape enough money to send me to boarding school in the UK, uh, which I uh, was very grateful for. I had a very good education at school. I went to university and at this point, my dad, who by this uh, moment, I don't talk about this in the book, but it might be interesting. He'd become a junior minister in Boris Yeltsin's government. Uh, he was subject to some false allegations. Uh, long story short, he had to flee Russia under false identity. 
Uh, and it meant that my family went from being quite wealthy to not having any money at all, going back to our humble beginnings. Uh, in the space of about five years, this happened. My, we were very poor, then my dad became a millionaire, then we were very poor again. And it meant I never got to finish my degree uh, at Edinburgh University, which I was studying economics and politics. Uh, and I, I did. I sort of looked around and went, well, what skills do I have? And it was, I spoke Russian, I spoke English, and I understood a bit of politics and culture and, and business and economics. Uh, so I, I started my own translation business um, and I did that for about 10 years. And then eventually I got really bored of it. I had like an early midlife crisis in my early 30s, I think. And I thought, what, what, I, I'm not doing enough creative stuff. What can I do that would give a, an outlet to my creative interests? And uh, that's when I got into comedy and I did that for a few years. I was, you know, doing very well, traveling around the country, performing in different clubs. And, um, that was the case really up until about, I would say late 2017, early 2018, at which point I started noticing that in the comedy industry, something very odd was happening. And I think it was tied into Brexit and Trump and all of the political events that were happening. But there was a sort of feeling that suddenly it was now, instead of comedians being what I thought comedians were supposed to be, which is pushing back against the mainstream dogmas of the day, challenging orthodoxy, questioning things, saying the unsayable, making jokes that some people would find offensive, but that was kind of the point, um, to suddenly words were violence and we're all oppressing each other with jokes and, and all of this started happening. Uh, and then I think also around Brexit, it was quite an odd experience for me because, you know, people can't see me, but I'm a dark skinned first generation immigrant. And there was this narrative that like suddenly like half the country were racist bigots because they'd voted for Brexit. Now I voted remain in the referendum, but it didn't match my experience of living in this country for uh, over 20 years. I, you know, my experience of Britain is that it's one of the most welcoming, tolerant places in the world. And I've traveled quite extensively around the world. So I, I sort of feel I have something to compare against. Um, and that was very odd to me. Suddenly I, I would be standing backstage about to go on at a, at a comedy club and I'd hear some, you know, white kid in his twenties go on and talk about, well, I'm a straight white man, therefore I'm evil. And then have some kind of joke about that. And that didn't really make any sense to me. I, I didn't understand why the comedy industry thought that, you know, all Brexit voters are racist and all of this stuff. And so uh, my friend, another comedian and I, Francis Foster, we started a podcast and a YouTube show called Trigonometry, really to try and understand what was going on. Uh, why were these things happening? Why was comedy now oppressive and, and whatever else people were saying it was? Why were people clearly lying about the reason that certain political movements were happening? Um, and in doing so, we we started to uh, explore some of these themes. We had a lot of left wing Brexiteers on, for example, on the show to try and like, OK, look, yeah, the, the Tories are all evil. We know that. Right. But what is like you voted for Brexit and you're left wing. Why? Why did you do that? So it was really a, a show that came out of ignorance and curiosity and a potent mix. We, we were like, we don't know what's going on, but we'd quite like to. And we'd like to do that with an open mind. Uh, and through doing that, we met a lot of different people, explored a lot of different political perspectives, and it kind of filled a niche that I was always interested in, which was understanding politics, understanding political philosophy, and history obviously is a huge part of that process as well. And then my own comedy career continued, and one of the things that happened that many people know about is uh, in um, the very end of 2018, I was offered to do a gig at uh, SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies. Uh, and uh, th when they invited me to, to perform, this was to raise money for charity, they uh, sent me a, uh, a behavioral agreement form, uh, which said that uh, if I agreed to perform, I have to sign this contract, which said that they have a zero tolerance policy on racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, anti-religion, anti-atheism, and it also said that all jokes must be respectful and kind. Um, and when I turned it down, it became quite a big story. And that was really a, an illuminating moment for me because up until that point, I 
because of the way the comedy industry is, it's very progressive. It's always it, been very, sorry. Had you started it. trigonometry um, before? Just, yeah, just, just, just we start, started right. trigonometry in April 2018, and this happened in late November, early December 2018. Okay. Uh, so it was a few months into it. And of course, our experience as two comedians who were having conversations with these quote unquote problematic people on our show was we were essentially in the process of getting pushed out of the comedy industry anyway, because we were having the wrong conversations with the wrong people. And the comedy industry's view of us was that we were these evil right wing, you know, whatever uh people who uh you know we were starting to see that people would start booking us for comedy gigs we were starting to see that the opinion of us sort of in the zeitgeist of the of the comedy industry was that we were wrong bad and evil um but and because of that it's, it was quite tempting for us i suppose to assume that lots of people out there in the real world felt that way as well uh, and to use a modern term, we were quite gaslit by the environment we were operating in. So when this contract thing happened and I turned it down and just for context, you've got to understand at this point, I was a comedian with absolutely no profile, turning down an unpaid charity gig from a university that no one cares about. And this happened uh, the day that it was the second biggest story on the BBC News website was the day that Theresa May, the then prime minister, was nearly removed from office by her own party. We didn't know at the time this would happen every six months with the Tory party, so they, they decided to remove the leader. So it seemed quite odd at the time and it was a big deal. And what I think that told me really is it was clear to me, uh, you know, I have an ego, but not to not an ego of the size that I thought this story really was about me. What I noticed was that so many people reached out to me with stories of their own where they said, well, look, you refuse to sign this contract, but actually I live my life on a daily basis as if I've signed this contract because I fear for my job. I fear what people will say and do to me and my family if I say what I think in public. And so that's when I really understood that the conversation we were having about free speech and comedy, which we thought was really limited to us, to our creative industry, which is always going to be slightly out there, actually was reflective of a broader set of movements in society where, and you know, I talk about this in the book, where now 50% of people feel more afraid to say what they think than they did a few years ago in this country and in America, two thirds of people are afraid to express their political opinions in public, I, yeah. including a majority of even Democrats. I guess we always think we're politically reasonable. Everyone thinks that, don't mm. they? Um, but I've, 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 um, I've, I definitely recognise that. C certainly from a previous career as well. Even when I wasn't doing a podcast or anything, um, I would um, be careful within a corporate environment as to what I would um, would say. And 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 that's certainly the case, you know, doing this. I, I'm I'm very careful. I don't want to offend people, but. Um, mm. I do. Uh, so that's I'm fine. certainly not a comedian, though. But part of the comedian's job is to offend. You know, I, I, I've always thought because I, I grew up in the sort of uh, late 80s, 90s. You had all those comedians who were being very offensive to to. <laughs> there was no one safe. You know, I'm thinking Bill Hicks and mm. Alexi Sale and those sorts of people. Yeah. And George Carlin and people like that. And I, mm. I'm glad you gave those examples rather than later iterations, which are the Jimmy Carr and the Frankie Boyles, who who are perfectly entitled to do the jokes that they do. But what was always important to me with people like Bill Hicks and George Carlin is there was they were not just going out and trying to make fun of some minority group for being a dwarf or for, for, for being disabled or whatever, which was more the Frankie Boyle direction, frankly. The people that I'm, I was thinking about were people who were actually challenging some of the political dogmas of the day. Uh, and to me, that was always the role of a, certainly a satirist or a comedian who had political inclinations, which I always did. And I thought it was a really important sign of a healthy society, because as you know, having read the book, in Russia, in my lifetime, I watched this happen where we went from the Soviet Union where no comedy criticizing politicians was allowed. Then Boris Yeltsin comes in, there's a liberating, there's an opening up. And 
people make an equivalent of spitting image, which was incredibly popular. Because imagine this, we've lived for 70 years in a society where if you criticize the leaders, you're going to go to the camps, you're going to get executed, you, your work will never be published, etc. To suddenly, you've got these great talented satirists who are making fun of the events, which are extraordinary by any standard anyway. And you've got this comedic narration of everything that's happening in your society. It was exciting. I remember being a little kid and the whole family sitting down to watch Spitting Image. And it was so the equivalent of Spitting Image in Russia. And it was so well made that even a, like a 10 year old like me could enjoy it because the jokes were so brilliant. And of course, the moment Vladimir Putin comes in in 1999, his first act is to end any satire and any comedy that, that targets him or any of the senior political leaders in the country in any way. So I saw what happens in unfree societies and, and the fact that essentially what, what I see is the, the, the suppression of comedy and the suppression of satire and the fact that there's things that you can't joke about. To me, that is a sign of tyranny. I'm not saying we live in a tyrannical society where there's a tyrant in charge, but it's a tyrannical way of doing politics where we say, well, you can't say this and you can't joke about this. And we've got these sacred cows that cannot even be tackled through comedy. That to me was a bad sign. It was a sign that we were moving in the wrong direction and it worried me a lot. Do you think there are comedians today that, um, are there any comedians? I mean, I know Jimmy Carr is, is, is um, recently got into a bit of hot water um but I, I don't i'm not sure if he's really the kind of comedian that is pushing boundaries that that i mean he's funny but he's not he's not pushing boundaries that um i think comedians that I'm, i remember from from my youth are no i agree with you i i don't i think jimmy is a very good joke writer but he's 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 pushing different kinds of boundaries not ones i was ever particularly interested in pushing myself but he he should have every right to do that if he wants to and he's obviously had his very successful career. What I would say is, particularly when we get into all this conversation, well, you know, comedians say you can't say anything these days, but here they are selling out a Netflix special or whatever. Like, the, my argument was never that Dave Chappelle, for example, who I genuinely think is doing something valuable on that front, uh, can't say what he wants or can't make the jokes that he wants. But that, you remember where I was coming from, I was a comedian on the comedy circuit. Right. That that basically means no one knows who you are. You are hired by comedy clubs to come and do a 10, 15, 20 minute set on a Saturday night. And your job is to travel around the country and entertain people. And you are being paid and booked by individual people with the comedy industry who are deciding whether you're suitable for their comedy night. So that your future is not in your hands and you have absolutely no power. You don't you are not someone like Dave Chappelle who can say, well, look, if Netflix cancels me, I'll go and put up my special on my own website and it's still going to get probably get more views than it otherwise would have done. But if you're just a circuit comic, which is what most comedians are, you're incredibly vulnerable, incredibly vulnerable to the opinions of other people in the comedy industry. And I know friends, for example, who, uh, you know, they, they, they've lost work as a result of not even expressing an opinion politically, but like, for example, saying that they're friends with me or defending something I've said or whatever. So you've got this situation where a tiny, tiny industry in the UK, which is the comedy industry, everyone's watching everyone and no one's supposed to say the wrong thing and no one's supposed to step out of line. And that was the environment that I was talking about. Yes, super successful comics who've already made it, they can do whatever the hell they want. But we're stifling the next generation of people coming through uh, and have been for quite some time. Yeah, I th I th the loss of a sense of humor in the society is a very, very bad sign. I mean, you mentioned in the book, you mentioned a comedian who, who made a joke about Brexit. Um, I think it was was it Alistair Williams. Alistair Williams, yeah. I I I, I mean I I was um, quite a passionate Remainer myself, but I I find that joke quite funny, and I didn't mm. understand why you can't laugh. Why can't why can't we laugh at, at our own you know beliefs and things? But we're becoming less good at laughing at ourselves as well. Well, we take everything more seriously now, don't we? The, the passions mm. are running very high and wild in society. So everything is very serious and people now deliberately misinterpret jokes. This is the other thing about uh, the, the comedy environment that we're operating in. Comedy very often relies on goodwill. Uh, this is why one of the most important qualities for a comedian is actually not being funny. It's being likable. 
uh, you're not, imagine you're at a party and there's a guy that, that you really don't like. It doesn't really matter how funny his jokes are. If you don't like him, you're not going to laugh at his jokes or her jokes. So it's kind of the same with comedy. Comedy relies on goodwill. It relies on the assumption that you're probably not saying the things that you're saying from a bad place. You're not trying to hurt anyone. You're just doing jokes. But but if if everything is interpreted interpreted through the prism of politics, uh, then well, are you joking or are you are you making a political point? Are you from the other team? Do I have to now take everything you say literally? Because, of course, irony is such a huge part of comedy as well. It's saying something you do not mean and, and relying on your audience to appreciate that you don't mean it. Or, as you say, in case of Alistair, he just made some very good observations about the way that Brexit was being handled. It didn't have to be a Remain or a Brexiteer to find it funny. It was just very good observational comedy. But if you are the sort of Remainer, uh, unlike us, who, who who thinks that Remain is the end of the world, uh, you know, leave is the end of the world, then it, it's it's not a sub, it's like the, a death in the family. It's not to be joked about. Then, of course, it doesn't matter how good the jokes are or how, how good the comedian is. You're just going to you're going to find it offensive. And Alistair paid a heavy price for for doing that routine. Well, I was I was very offended because you uh, I have a double barrel name and I've got a posh <laughs> accent and you did have a go at a double barrel posh accent to people. <laughs> well, yeah, but you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Thank and you. The other, very kind. The, the other thing that you mentioned was that you have John Cleese is was rather a fan of yours. And then I, I was noticing because you mentioned you went to Clifton College. I think John hmm. Cleese went there as well, didn't he? He did. Yeah. Also, one of my favorite classicists went there. Have you ever heard of G.E.M. de Saint-Croix? No, I haven't. <laughs> he he sounds like a middle a middle class guy with an almost double barrel name as well. Very much so. He was he was actually he was a brilliant classicist. He was he was um he was also very left wing. He wrote a book about the class struggle in the ancient world. Mm. Um, mm. But um yeah, worth middle class out. people often do. Yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Double barrel posh uh, posh people. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, and but John Cleese as well. But also, I wanted to ask no, you Oliver, about. By the way, just for the record, I should say I have nothing against people with double barrel surnames or who are posh. There's nothing wrong. Don't with worry, you, you can you can be. No, no, but, but this is actually an important point. My issue with that that I raise in the book is not so much about that. Is that I think some of the modern ideologies that I have an issue with are people from that background who are pushing things that actually. You know, the, it's, the term is luxury beliefs now that they are expressing opinions which make them feel good, but actually hurt a lot of normal working class, ordinary people. That's my concern. So just just to be clear on that. No, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and you that, are, the prop. <laughs> um, now, I wanted to ask you about a recent development, actually, because uh, just just sticking with the comedy a bit longer, because um, Joe Lysett has just who's a a comedian mm. who ha has actually been i think contacted by the police after he did a set i think and a member of the audience reported him to the police mm. and this is just you know uh, just one i'm hoping things will improve but it doesn't look like it they are if this kind of thing is happening yeah and the 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 reality is is once you make being offensive a crime then this will happen. And we have laws on the books now that make being offensive a crime. We've had, um, the last time I checked, it was figures for 2017, I think. I talked about this in my Edinburgh show. Um, over 3,000 people a year get arrested in this country for things that they say on social media. And a lot of it is to do with being offensive. I don't know if you're familiar with the case of Harry Miller. He's a former police officer who tweeted something, some kind of tra supposedly transphobic limerick or something, or offensive limerick about trans people. And he had the police call him up and tell him that they need to check his thinking. And the same thing with Joe Lysett, he, he, he got a call from the police uh, getting him to explain his jokes. It seems to me that that is not a healthy direction for society to be moving in. But that is, unfortunately, the legislative environment in which we're now operating, which is why I think it's really important uh, that this that we see pushback against that. Um, but you're right. Actually, it's been moving in the wrong direction, even under the supposedly libertarian and free thinking uh, Boris Johnson government. Uh, that's what we were told he was. Uh, but actually, he's pushing through. He was pushing through this online harms bill. Uh, which would uh, criminalize and restrict comedy even further. 
Um, so we will see who emerges from the latest Tory bloodbath and maybe that person is going to be uh, more in favour of allowing people to make jokes without being criminals. Yeah, yeah, it's a very worrying uh, move. So I I wanted to move on a little bit about your because mm. you, you've mentioned that in your um, the just just talking about your background, your career, um, but your family, your your family history, which, um, you know, it, it's sort of tied up with um, the the latter half of the 20th century and the and, and Russia. And it's it's so interesting in the book um, reading about it, because I don't think we get to see the sort of human side of these um policies in Soviet Russia and then particularly I think you go way back to your great grandfather I think you mentioned was um was in interred in a in a um in a gulag and he I was. just want, yeah I wanted to just hear a little bit about that well I actually like to start with his daughter my grandmother mm. uh and she was Eleanor? born Eleanor she Eleanor she was born in a gulag born in a gulag uh, because her father and her mother had been interned there. Her father was there because he was a Polish communist who came over uh, to join the great communist cause. And uh, once they'd realized that they don't want Polish people or Polish communists or foreign communists or whatever, they went through iterations of cleaning out people who they thought were suspect. He ended up in, in the gulag and he was a very talented engineer. So he was actually kept there longer than even his completely unfounded 10 year sentence. Um, and uh, his wife, uh, well, later wife, the woman he met, she ended up in, in the gulag simply because her husband had been taken away in the middle of the night and she was like she had a, a newborn baby uh, she didn't know what was going on so she left the baby with a neighbor and went to inquire after him never to be seen again straight to the camps herself as the as the wife of uh, an enemy of the people as well and that's where they met and that's where my uh, grandmother was born uh, in the camp. So uh, it, that was the history of one side of my family. Where uh, was the camp? Do you know? Uh, it was many different ones. Right. Uh, it was many different ones. I I, uh, I know that he, they would have all had something to do with mining because my great grandfather was a highly skilled engineer. He designed a lot of the mining equipment and uh, helped to build a lot of the mines that were being used in, in these camps. Uh, and around around the country at the time, but it was in a few different places. It was he was moved around constantly. I think he was in Af in Kazakhstan at certain points. Uh, so he he was essentially kind of like a highly skilled uh, member of staff, just uh, just <laughs> without any pay. Um, so he would be shipped around on different projects. And uh, down the other side of my my family, my, down my mother's side, my grandmother, who's still alive today, living in Ukraine, 96 years old. Uh, they were, I'm, I'm, people won't be able to see this, but I'm using quotation marks, wealthy peasants. They had a horse and this made them kulaks, uh, which were these supposedly wealthy, rich peasants who were to be dispossessed uh, so that their wealth, ill-gotten Ill wealth could be shared with the people. Uh, and uh, when the communists came uh, to their house, they kicked them out onto the street, seized all their possessions and uh, exiled them to Siberia. Uh, and um, my great uncle, my who would have been my great uncle, he was a, a small child at the time, he starved to death on the way. Um, and uh, eventually my grandmother ended up making it back to Ukraine with her family uh, and married a guy uh, who had been uh, taken as a slave laborer to Germany when the Germans invaded. So, uh, you know, I have all of these different sides to, to my family from that, as you say, that the that part of the 20th century who experienced a lot of things that uh, we now don't even realize happened. Uh, and the fact that I grew up and for, was fortunate enough to have these people in my family to remind me of what people had gone through in living memory. I find that a really useful perspective from which to look at the modern world and to remember to be grateful every now and again. But the Russian experience um, where there's, I guess, or, or that brief period in the 90s, there's, it's not really uh, a, t a time where, where you would talk about the um, experience of, of people being put into gulags as negatively i mean uh, the view of the russian people is you know the uh, great mother russia it's hugely patriotic you don't really know does anyone really talk about huge pain uh, that affected millions of people 
Yeah, I, I, look, I think the, there are a lot of people who want to turn a blind eye to it. Uh, it the, Stalin, I believe, is the most popular historical figure in Russia today. Uh, and there, are, there is a narrative going around that, you know, what he did was necessary and all of that because it makes people feel comfortable with, with history. Uh, there are also a lot of people who understand what happened and are very clear about the evils of communism, the evils of what was done uh, under not only Stalin, but this is the point that I, I make and the reason I, I wrote the book because I am seeing, you know, when I talk about comparing the modern West to elements of the Soviet Union, I, to be clear, I'm not comparing it to the Stalinist period. I'm not saying we've got mass executions and gulags and whatever. But in the late Soviet Union, my grandfather, uh, he made some comments about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and was made unemployable overnight, ostracized by his friends, eventually ended up leaving the country and coming to the UK, which is how he ended up here. Uh, and uh, is that so different to what some people experience now in the environment that we operate in? Uh, you know, uh, the, the sort of I remember during the 80s, there were these letters that would go around all the public institutions and everybody would have to sign them saying we absolutely support the invasion of Afghanistan or or we don't agree with this and this person because they said the wrong thing. Uh, I, I, to me, I, I see reflections of that in modern society when I see someone like J.K. Rowling, for example, coming out and making some very softly worded and carefully nuanced comments about the issue of transgenderism. And uh, she is essentially ostracized, attacked, threatened. And this is with the connivance of many public figures and, and major institutions in this country. Yeah, I, I see the we live in a society where people are afraid to say what they think because the punishment will be meted out to them. So I'm concerned that we're moving in this direction because I think this is, it's antithetical to the Western project. The, the Everything we enjoy in the West, whether that's prosperity or comfort or safety or the advances of science or technology, these are products of, of societies that encourage freedom of speech and freedom of research and freedom of science over ideology and over dogma. Uh, and the fact that we've now gone back to the sort of pseudo-religious age now where we 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 take matters of science to be matters of faith, uh, you know, trans women are women and anyone who questions this in any way is automatically a bigger and is to be destroyed. You know, whatever your view of that particular issue is, even if you are, even if you support that statement, you should be troubled by the fact that people are not able to have a discussion about it. And instead they're having the livelihoods and their lives destroyed over things like that. That, that should worry all of us. Do you, th do you think there's an end goal? Um, because it, it doesn't feel like it's an organized movement, you know? Um, so is there an end goal where, we the the masses just agree to what um which which is probably ultimately quite a small minority small very vocal minority believe mm. i mean is is it a sort of a fear for you know everyone will ultimately be censoring themselves and then that's sort of job done well, I think we're kind of there at the moment. I'm hopeful actually that we are starting to see, and I hope my book is part of this movement, a bit of pushback not from the the sort of like right-wing idiots who who just want to destroy the left which i absolutely don't uh but from sensible people who are saying look like we need a sensible way forward uh this doesn't work we can't run around screaming hashtag be kind while mobbing people into suicide and sending people rape and death threats because they've got the wrong opinion um so i'm starting to see that pendulum slowing down perhaps if not swinging back yet and my concern equally is that when the pendulum does swing back, I mean, if you look at history, pendulums tend to overswing in both directions. And, and that's a concern to me as well, that uh, people like me who argue in favor of free speech, who argue in favor of people, you know, being allowed to have different political views in favor of not neither being discriminatory, not tokenizing minority, nor tokenizing minorities and just treating everybody as equals, which is what I thought when I came to the West, this, this was all about right, uh, that we don't end up in a position where actually some of those freedoms and things like, you know, gay marriage and equal rights and other areas don't get rowed back in the wrong direction. Because you're starting to see now, for example, support among young people for LGBTQ rights is actually falling. They are less supportive of that than previous generations. And I suspect that is to do 
with a lot of the craziness that they're seeing. So we've gone from let's treat everybody equally to, you know, these people must be given special treatment and you mustn't say anything about this group or that group or whatever. That's off-putting to a lot of people. So my concern is that, yes, the pendulum does need to slow and stop and go back somewhat or go in a different direction, but also we mustn't overswing either. So uh, I don't know, I, I, I never, I'm, I'm not really a conspiracy theorist in, in that I think a lot of this is, Sure, it's encouraged by some people. There are people who've capitalized it on it. There's people who've made careers out of going along with it. Uh, but I just think the I think the way it's happened is uh, some people have hijacked our empathy and weaponized empathy against us because we live in a society. You know, this is one of the things that makes this country great is if you say to people in this country, well, look, my experience as a immigrant or my experience as a this or as a that is is that actually there's problems society. People will listen. In most other societies, including the ones that I come from, if you come up, if you came over to Russia and started criticizing Russian society, you'd find out very quickly how badly that ends for you. But we in this country, we're much more welcoming of different opinions and we want to hear the other side. We want to be, be better. And I think that's been weaponized against us a little bit and our empathy has been hijacked. And then, of course, you have the other side, which is you have cowardly institutions and cowardly politicians who don't want to address these issues honestly and instead they allow these activists to to present themselves this is one of the big concerns i have with both left and right is not enough people on both sides of the political spectrum are willing to call out the extremists on both sides on their own side uh, it's very easy if you're on the right to go oh, look at these woke idiots and equally if you're on the left it's very easy to go oh, look at these right-wing evil whatever and that's the way the conversation happens but actually what I think people need to do on the left on the moderate left is call out the extremists and distance themselves from them and likewise on the right and that's when you can actually get to a position where you're, you've got most of the country with you and the extremists have been to con condemned to the fringes where they belong. Looking at America it feels like that that ship has sailed it's, things are so polarized there but um i do hope that that's um something in this country in britain that we can we can see more um what i like throughout your book is is that you seem to be um you often talk to the reader aiming it's, it's like you're aiming your book at um also readers from many different political backgrounds which which i think is um, it's quite unusual nowadays because often, you know, it's, it's sort of echo chamber and people are talking to to, to um, their own their own groups. But you're 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 throughout the book quite keen to speak to people who are from different political beliefs. I think it's really important. Yeah, it's really yeah. Important. And and that's something that's that's um, quite prevalent with with trigonometry as well. But it it's labelled as a kind of some people label trigonometry completely wrongly, don't they? You, you've talked that your trigonometry has been described as right wing, but having watched a few episodes, I haven't seen much evidence of it. Yeah, uh, look, uh, look. one of the things I, tr I really try not to do is focus on people who deliberately misinterpret what I say or what I do, because I just think that's a waste of I, I could be I could do what a lot of these activists do, which is sit here and play the victim and talk to you about all the death threats that people send me or this happened or that happened or whatever. I'm really not that interested in it at all. Uh, we have a show in which we try to explore different perspectives, and I, I genuinely believe that most people in this country are sensible. Most people in this country will hear rational argument when it's presented to them. Uh, most people in this country are not extremists. Most people in this country don't want to be associated with extremists. And they are the sensible majority, center left, center right, and in the center that I want to address. And I believe they're the vast majority of this country. So why would I spend my time focusing on a few uh, loonies? Uh, I really wanted to address everybody from left and right in the book who is open to rational argument because I do think I have presented some very important counterfactuals to many of the things that are being advanced uh, in, in the West at the moment, in, especially when it comes to things like the history of this country, slavery, race and racism, attitudes to immigration. These are things about which I can speak with a little bit of personal experience as well as authority. And I wanted to give people a context for how to how I think we can look at our society in a healthy way. And by healthy, I mean, of course, acknowledging the, the, the bad things that we've done and our country has done and our ancestors have done without 
making it seem like we're the only people in the world who've ever done anything of the kind. Uh, and then I sort of tried to, we have a saying in Russian, everything is understood in context. And I try to give the context uh, because, you know, there's this big debate now about history and the teaching of history. You know, do we teach enough about slavery? And my argument is hell no. We don't teach nearly enough about slavery, not least because the only thing we teach about is the transatlantic slave trade in which Britain and the British Empire was involved. But actually, if we taught the history of slavery around the world, then that context would give us a much better understanding of what our role is in it. And our role, in my opinion, the Western colonial powers role is we were involved in one of the most terrible elements of the slave trade throughout the human history. But actually, the thing that makes our experience with slavery most unique is that we ended it and we tried to get other countries to end it. Um, the trans-Saharan slave trade, which was happening over a longer period of time, uh, took most black slaves out of Africa than the Western colonial powers did. The death rate was higher and it only ended because the Western colonial powers put pressure on the Arab slave traders who, who were doing it to stop. So that's to me the context that's really, really important. Yes, bad things happened, we did them, and here's the context. That's how I think we should talk about history. Absolutely. Uh, there's another area that I think is not explored so much, which is certainly seen in in, in Russia and Central Europe. And we had Norman Davis on, on the podcast of um, a few months ago talking about serfdom and how, you know, that wasn't slavery, but it wasn't far off slavery. Well, I mean, you were you were assigned to a piece of land for which you could not leave. You had a uh, a baron essentially who who controlled that land, who could whip you for misdemeanors and misbehaving, and to whom you owed most of the of the food that you grew. I mean, how different is that from slavery exactly? Uh, I don't feel that it was all that different. And I also give the example, of course, we talked about already uh, my great grandfather in the camps. He was kept back simply because he was useful. He was a slave. My other, my grandfather, who was taken as a slave labor to Germany. This was within living memory, Ollie. This was the, the people. There are people alive today who went through that. So I just I just think that we we do ourselves a disservice when we rip our history out of the broader historical picture. We've got to understand ourselves in a context uh, because I think one of the strongest elements of uh, Britain is our willingness to look at ourselves and to be self-critical and to want to grow and improve. But that is impossible if you've decided that you're irredeemably bad and uh, hopeless and the most evil people in the world, that not much growth comes out of that. It's, it's, it's the same with you as a person. If you think about your flaws and the things that you're not perfect at and you'd like to get better at, you can improve. But if you decide that you're hopeless and irredeemable and worthless and the worst person that's ever lived, you're going to struggle to, to, to move forward and to have a healthy view of yourself and to live a life that is fulfilling and meaningful. So I think that as a society, we've got to do the same. We've got to, sure, we've got to reckon with our past, but we've also got to embrace the fact that we are one of the most open, welcoming, tolerant societies, not just in the world today, but the entire history of the human species. And we've got to be cognizant of that, as well as the mistakes we've made, if we're going to succeed in the 21st century, in which, and this is really the main point that I wanted to make in the book, it is very important that in the West we have a healthy conception of ourselves, because if we don't, we undermine ourselves. If we if you think you're the worst society ever, why would you defend yourself against threats? And as I think we've seen in recent months, we have threats. I've been trying to make this point to people for years. Nobody wanted to listen. Nobody cared. Now we know we have threats. Now we know that there are people who want to challenge the world order that we've lived in for a very long time that has delivered the safety and prosperity and stability that we enjoy. There are people coming. And if we're not ready, if we're not confident in ourselves, if we're not willing to stand up for what we believe in, then those people will come and they will take over. Now, you've alluded to Putin's invasion of Ukraine there. Uh, do you think that the West now has reached a turning point. We've seen increasingly more unity uh, from the West, particularly after the fracturing of the last few years. I hope so. And I, I have to say, I've been pleasantly surprised by the unity that most Western countries have shown. I think there are notable outliers on that, Germany in particular. But broadly speaking, I've been very pleasantly surprised. And I hope that is a moment when people wake up and realize that uh, it's it's a, it's a tale as old as time. If you become, uh, if you spend your your entire life 
navel gazing and obsessing about what's wrong with you. There are other people who outside of the gates who are not obsessing about what's wrong with them. They are quite interested in those very old fashioned things like land, power, oil, money, uh, military conquest, etc. And uh, I hope this has given people the wake up call that they've needed to realize we we can't afford to navel gaze for the rest of eternity. There are people who are quite happy. You know, the Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, made it very clear repeatedly. He said, the purpose of what we're doing in Ukraine is to remove the West influence from Eastern Europe. They want, they want to expand and they want us to withdraw. Uh, so what happened, what's happening in Ukraine is not some localized conflict. It is a deliberate attempt to challenge the power of Western countries, the United States, Britain and others, uh, and to force us back. And one of the reasons they're doing it is they see us divided. And, and of course, Russia and China very busily helping us divide ourselves by spamming our social media with fake accounts that amplify all these pointless cultural divisions. Uh, so that we cannot concentrate and we cannot concentrate and think about the things that actually matter. Like uh, you mentioned, you know, our values are under threat. I wonder how many people in Britain in public would would be happy to define what Western or British values are. If you ask a, a person in the street, what are British values? I think you, you'd get a lot of mumbling and arming and arming because it's sort of not cool anymore to think that Britain has values that we all believe in. Uh, and, uh, you know, values have been the sort of Britain's values have been replaced with all of this sort of like tolerance and diversity, which is fine in and of itself. But I don't think that is what Vladimir Putin is challenging. Do you know what I mean? It's not tolerance and diversity that he's against particularly. What I think he is against is freedom, democracy, liberty, freedom of speech, the ability for people to make their own decisions, national self-determination, respect for democratic norms, freedom of speech and journalism, freedom of research, all of these things, right? But people don't want to articulate that because somehow that's become associated with the wrong politics or whatever. So we, we, bet, we need a wake-up call. I hope this is the one that we needed. I suspect we've got more coming. There's probably also, uh, if you asked a, a Brit in the street, there's also that self-deprecating, oh, I wouldn't want to blow my own trumpet about that kind mm, of thing, mm, inevitably. Mm. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, because uh, we're near, nearly uh, at the end, um, there's some fantastic um, uh, little snippets throughout the book that you've you've just you, that you've written about, but in particular, you, you've got your 10, 10 ways to destroy the West. Do you have a, a kind of... Um, any sort of ambitions yourself beyond trigonometry? Uh, I, I, my sense is you're asking about politics. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, no, God, no. Uh, I've always said to uh, comedians, some friends of mine sometimes ask me about... You but, know, you come, but you come up with answers, you see. That's, that's, what, that's what I mean. Whereas, you know, often you get uh, polemicists and critics, we'll, ju we'll talk about the problems, but not the answers. Sure. Well, and I hope that there are people in positions of influence who, who read the book and uh, see if those solutions that I've proposed are, are, are suitable for them, that they, they can sell those to the public, they can deliver those. Uh, everybody has a role to play. Uh, and my role, I think, is to, to, to facilitate conversation, to express opinions, to shape some of the dialogue on these issues, I hope, to contribute to the discussion, to give it a different perspective. But uh, I'm not a, I, I never wanted to be a politician. Uh, I am I, far too uninterested in other people's opinions of me to, to, to be a politician. Like I'm quite happy to express an opinion that most people will dislike, whereas a politician, I think, certainly in the modern era, is, doesn't have that luxury. Uh, and that's not something I'm willing to let go. Uh, so uh, I've got my role to play. And, you know, I see now, for example, with the, the Tory leadership contest, there are a lot of people who are now being forced to address some of the cultural issues that I bring up, whether that's, you know, the, the issue of race and slavery. Kemi Badenoch, for example, is somebody who's quite big on pushing back against some of the modern narratives on that issue. Uh, it's, you know, the conversation around trans. Again, that's something a lot of the leadership candidates are now being forced to address. So I feel that in doing the show and writing the book and offering my commentary on the subject, I'm one of a large number of uh, people who are contributing to making sure that these issues get addressed. 
and and that is how I see my role. Uh, I think any comedian, particularly a comedian like me, who who wanted to push boundaries and make edgy jokes and and continues to do that, uh, would be absolutely insane to go into politics because they will just like we were talking right at the beginning of the conversation. People won't give you the benefit of the doubt. They won't say, well, look, this was said to a boozy crowd on a Saturday night in a comedy club with irony. They will just take the clip and say, you meant this. Uh, literally, and this is the equivalent of you saying it at 9 a.m. in the morning on Good Morning Britain. Well, we, we've seen a comedian in, in Ukraine do yeah. well. Um, we but... have. He's not actually a comedian, though. This no, is no, I know. I'm being a bit, bit yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's a sketch, uh, he, he's the head of a sketch group and really a media executive as well. So he had some managerial experience before he, he went into politics, too. Actually, I'm not keen to follow in his footsteps on any number of, for any number of reasons. He's got quite a tough job on his hands, unfortunately. He certainly has. He certainly has. So, so we're coming to him. Th- thanks so much for joining me. I, I've, I'm going to put links to everything we've described, uh, we've talked about uh, in the show notes, uh, in particular the book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. Uh, there are also a couple of talks that, I, that, are, that are on Trigonometry that are really good for our listeners, which is the one with Tom Holland, mm. which was excellent. And then also Roger Morehouse, mm. um, t- Tom Holland talking about sort of the uh, almost puritanical echoes uh, from history of, of what where we are now. And then um, Roger Morehouse is excellent on the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the Russian misunderstanding of history. Well, the Putin's misunderstanding of history. Mm. Well, historians are some of our favorite guests, to be honest, because I really feel that history has such a powerful explanatory power for many things that are happening in society in the present time. Uh, We love talking to historians uh, about all sorts of different things because it's just, I I think we, I, I, one of my biggest disappointments, I say I had a good education in school and I suppose I did, but history is taught so poorly and not just in this country but actually in every country i think we we get so little and it's so decontextualized and i've made it my life's business if you like to try and catch up and try and fill some of those gaps so anytime we manage to have a historian on to talk about um some aspect of history that i didn't know about uh, it's, it's just a gift so yeah those two are in particular really really good episodes i recommend people check out great uh well Constantine, thanks so much for your time. Um, I'll let you get back to the warm weather. Ollie, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. So as I said at the start, you can get links in the show notes. Thanks so much to those who've got in touch and are enjoying the pod. A particular shout out to a Peruvian listener. And who'd have thought I'd have such a reach? Hello to Pablo Andres Moscoso de la Cuba. So glad you enjoy aspects of history. Coming up in the next few weeks... And months, we've got Miranda Mallins on Oliver Cromwell, Timothy Ashby on Elizabethan spies and their black ops, and Ben McIntyre on Colditz. I'll be taking a bit of a break in August, but we'll resume in the autumn with more great names and great history. Thank you, and good night.